Welcome to F4 Podcasts. I'm Atul Singh, the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. With me is Karthik Kilachand. He's been an entrepreneur in the US, and he has returned to India for a life in the social sector. So Karthik, welcome. Thank you, Atul. Pleasure. So Karthik, walk us through your entrepreneurial journey. You were Uh, an IIT kid who landed up in the US and instead of working in one of the big boys, you struck out on your own. So how did that happen? So going back, you know, I think we were, I'm a post-independence child, born in the early 50s. And it was a very different India, right? Coming out of uh, the British Raj. Uh, As a nation, we were bankrupt. You know, literacy rates were in the 20s. Healthcare was absolutely abysmal, etc. I, I still remember growing up, and I happened to have been born in a privileged family, nothing to do with me. But we had to wait seven years for a landline. And, you know, we had to wait some nine years for a Fiat car. Uh, things so, have changed. seven years for a landline. So, those of our listeners who don't know about uh, landlines, these were these old phones connected by wires. You couldn't take them and move around the house. So that sort of phone, you had to wait seven years. And of course, Fiat was a car. Of course, it was an offshoot of Fiat in Italy, except it was an old model. Uh, The engine wasn't that great and the aesthetics were worse. And you had to wait. Um, And this is because uh, Jawaharlal Nehru in his wisdom decided that we would have a socialist economy And his daughter, Indira Gandhi, bet heavily, doubled down on the socialism bet, a socialism model. And so we had a license permit quota, Raj, which meant that there was a license you you required to make anything. There was a quota which determined how much you could make. And and you needed a permit from the government. So this meant that uh, it was a scarcity economy. So Karthik grew up at a very distant time, not a time in India where you can buy anything off Amazon or for that matter, a Flipkart. Right. And, you know, in those days, uh, I mean, a stalking example is uh, a matrimonial ad for a male. If they had a landline was a huge asset, which they advertised that, you know, we have a telephone line, mm. forget the car. That meant they got a higher dowry, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. And a prettier girl. (laughs) That I don't know, but higher dowry for sure. So as a result, uh, the opportunities, uh, but as Atul was saying in parallel, you know, whilst uh, Nehru adopted the Fabian socialist economy, which probably was a good thing because we didn't have any competitive industries, right? Mm. So to build local industries, you had to have high import tariffs, otherwise they wouldn't be able to survive. Mm. So, but that model, which was adapted by Korea and Taiwan, etc. The difference was they didn't have such an overweening bureaucracy. Yes. We adopted that model using... Because of the British, yes. Using, using, using the Indian Administrative Service, which is a descendant of the Indian Civil Service. Correct. Uh, none of the East Asian Tigers had such terrible bureaucracy. Absolutely, absolutely. So the mistake which India made is, you know, 20 years after independence, when you adopt a Fabian socialist economy, is you gradually have to start lowering import duties. So the products which come in 
make your domestic products competitive. Yeah. There's another element. There's another element to it. Um, the Koreans and the Japanese bet big on private industry, whilst India ended up spending a lot on public sector. And um, CEOs of the public sector, sector uh, were all unprofessional. They were mainly IS officers. Mm -hmm. And I'm told uh, by IS officers themselves that there was a particular a big boss of Saras Dairy who uh, hated buffaloes and cows and actually was very near to fainting when, when he or she um, saw one and, and still was the, was the big boss of Saras Dairy. So, so what happened was, was a takeover of the commanding heights of the economy of the, by, by bureaucrats. And the bureaucrats also ran all the public sector units, which became basically guzzlers of taxpayer revenue. Right. So it was a monumental waste of taxpayer revenue. It could have, this revenue could have gone into building schools and hospitals and roads and whatnot. Instead, there was a massive misallocation of capital in Nehruvian India, and in particular under Indira Gandhi's India. Yeah, which got worse, which got worse. As I said, by the mid-60s, India should have started what I'm calling the word liberalizing, which is allowing imports of products. I think even more than imports, they should have made entrepreneurship easier. They throttled entrepreneurship at home. I don't mind if you have tariffs and you protect your economy. After all, the U.S. did that. The first act um, of the U.S. Congress uh, was a protectionist act to develop domestic industry. Most people forget that. But then the U.S. Congress didn't have so many rules and so much red tape that strangulated the local industry. So what, what I would blame Nehru and Indira Gandhi for was strangulating more than the tariffs. They strangled uh, local industry and local business. Exactly. And, you know, uh, the IAS, which... Uh really evolved from the Indian civil service. The Indian civil service, they were meant to have those graduates who were supposed to be the brightest control what the British wanted them to do. And extract. And extract. Extract uh, capital are, out of India, which is why they were called collectors. Collectors, exactly. They were collectors of revenue. They weren't meant to serve the people. No, and, and it's true even today. Even today's IS officers you know, are not equipped to run businesses. Certainly not. No. I mean, they, they, they've not run a single yeah. successful company. Correct. I mean, let's look at the example of Saras and Amul. Amul was run by the great Mr. Korean, and uh, a, a Verghese Korean, if I remember the name correctly. That's and correct. he's created, or the late um, Mr. Korean created, uh, a phenomenal company, which is the, pro or cooperative, not cooperative. a company. A phenomenal cooperative, which is the pride of India and which is studied by the rest of the world. Whilst every cooperative which has an IS officer in charge is basically in the doldrums. It's, it's sucking resources out of the nation. Correct. And, you know, as uh, uh, Mr. Kurian, really oh, what he did was what is now called the White Revolution, where India went from a completely milk deficient. You know, we are the largest exporters of milk. Yes, it's a great and story. And the largest manufacturers, right. So anyway, coming back. so manufacture, We can't manufacture milk. I mean, product, producers. <laughs> producers, producers, yes. Milk. So we are not largest export. We are the largest producers. Producers, yes. Right. You stand corrected. Yes. So uh, coming back. So you had this, the IAS officers. 
And Nehru, in his wisdom that time, also set up these five engineering institutes, which were supposed to be putting out engineers, which would India would require for building the infrastructure. Right? IITs, the Indian, the, the Indian Institute, Institute of Technology. Of technology. And, and the were, five of them were in Bombay, Delhi, Delhi. Uh, Chennai, you know, then Madras, Kharagpur and, Kharagpur and Kanpur. Yeah, exactly. Kharagpur was the first in was West, the first. West Bengal. Yeah. yeah. So started in the late 50s. And uh, what they did is the IITs had their own entrance exam, which today still is the most uncorrupt institution in the country. You cannot get into an IIT. To give you an example, so Narayan Murthy, founder of Infosys, his son could not get into the IITs, although Infosys was the most successful IT company. Mm -hmm. And uh, his son uh, ended up in Cornell as a second choice. Good. I mean, you can buy your place into Harvard, but you can't you buy your place buy into, into IIT. Into right. IIT. Uh, but, but hang on a minute. So before, I, I know we are jumping a bit. We'll get back to the Part of the discussion, uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have problems. Most people go to Kota, they, they go to a private coaching institute, they register in a dummy school, meaning they don't go to school. They are going to a private coaching institute just to prepare for the entrance exam, and a school where they are registered falsely fills out their attendance, and they get into IIT, and most of them, A, don't want to study engineering and B, uh, don't know uh, what to do with their lives and C, are burnt out. So it, the IIT model is not without its downsides. No, ab absolutely. But uh, uh, let me add another feature. So what you are saying is absolutely correct. And that's more in the last 20 years. That's correct. Nobody knew what an IIT meant except American universities, right? That's correct. If you were a graduate of IIT when I graduated. Which uh, was? 1973. 1973. Wow. Right. A while ago. A while ago. We 50 had, years ago. Yes. Now you've told everybody my age. <laughs> but uh, there were no coaching classes. Yes. Right. There were absolutely no coaching yeah. classes. It's just when the IITians went to the US and there was a CBS program. I don't know if you've seen it. I have. You have. I have, yeah. Where uh, suddenly it became the passport to make money. Yeah. Right? So, Holfire, tell our listeners, um, what was it like getting into IIT then? Because those are considered by many the golden years of IIT, because that's when the great and good went on to the US and went on to be great academics, went on to be inventors and went on to be CEOs. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, I think, I don't know the exact number, but maybe eight out of 10 of CEOs, Indian CEOs in the US are IIT, ex-IITians. Yeah. So to give you a, a, the number, uh, the percentage remains the same. The numbers were smaller then. So today, 1.2 million Indians apply for the entrance exam. It's called the JWE, the Joint Entrance Exam. Uncorruptible, no paper leaks, unless you get into the top and it's by actually directly by your percentage of right answers. So out of the 1.2 million, 10,000 get in. So we had five IITs then, we have 23 now. 
Okay, so the percentage is 0 0.08. That percentage to Harvard or Stanford or MIT is around 8-10%. Okay, so it's highly competitive. So we are talking about 0 0.8 and 8%. 0 0.08 versus 8%. 8%. So it's 100 times easier to get into Harvard. Yes. And uh, what happened in those days, which I call the second Quit India movement, you know, the first Quit India movement was the Brits, is 60, 65. Hold fire, hold fire. Many of the listeners, <laughs> especially if they are American or even British, will not know that. So 1942, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, not Indra Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, the father of the nation, called for the British to quit India. This was during World War II, and the British were promising home rule at the end of World War II. And he said that this was like a post-dated check on a failing bank, and India should get independence immediately, and India would help the, the <coughs> British in the war effort. Churchill, of course, disagreed. The great Winston Churchill thought that uh, Gandhi was a, Mahatma Gandhi was a half-naked fakir. He was a seditious lawyer. Uh, so, um, he basically uh, told Gandhi to take a walk, or we could use cruder language, which we won't on this podcast. Uh, and Gandhi did end up in jail. He was backed off. But the country erupted in the movement called the Quit India Movement, uh, in which uh, there was a mass uprising, there was sporadic violence, and um, it, it shook the British Empire somewhat. Uh, and that was historic. So that was the first Quit India Movement that Karthik has referred to. Uh, the second Quit India movement, he'll explain himself. So, yes. So the second Quit India movement, which happened in the 70s and 80s, is uh, our best and brightest graduates, right? The IITs is one example, but it also happened across other fields. But the IIT was the most glaring one. 60, 65% of us. That time, there were only five IITs, and each year, we graduated 1,500 across the five, 60-65% went to the U.S. and we were given full scholarships across all the top 20 universities in the U.S., whether it's the MITs or the Caltechs or the Cornells or the Stanfords of the world. And because there were no job opportunities at that time. In India. In India. Mm -hmm. uh, most of us stayed back. Mm -hmm. And it was called at that time the brain drain as well. How, what percentage of your batch or your year ended up in the U.S.? So at that time, 73, I think 65 to 68 percent of us ended up in the U.S. And which IIT did you go to? Uh, I was IIT Bombay. Mm -hmm. uh, there were five of us. And, you know, uh, there's big competition amongst us IITs as well, right? Mm. So when somebody asked me which IIT, IIT did you go to, my answer is, is there any other? Right? Of but, course. <laughs> 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 so, and IIT Bombay <laughs> has produced uh, billionaires like Bharat Desai. And, yes, uh, Nandan Nilekani. Nandan Nilekani, people like uh, philanthropists like Ruinton Mehta, one yes. could go on. Yeah. So it, it is uh, pretty, it has a pretty honorable alumni pool to, so and, to speak uh, my you know my iit colleagues uh, don't like to accept it but the last entrance exam mm. of this year's uh, out of the hun top 100 students we are ranked it's a direct rank right one to 10000 the top 100 
I think the number is 68 of them chose Bombay IIT. Oh, and wow. they're 23 IITs. Wow, so 23 IITs, 23 IITs, and, and out of the top 168 go to IIT Bombay. So you are blue-blooded when it comes to IIT lineage, and you rock up in the US. Yes. So, so what do you do apart from uh, going uh, to the beach and chasing the Baywatch blogs? <laughs> no, so in those days, that was a normal path. You did your master's in engineering. Yeah. And then uh, in those days, again, you didn't have work experience. And then you, some of us did an MBA mm. right away, right? Many entered the engineering field and many did the MBAs. But did you get scholarships for MBAs? No, for MBA you didn't. But by that time, uh, because you had your master's, mm. you could become a teaching assistant, etc. right? So uh, you didn't get a scholarship for the MBAs. Mm. Uh, but you kind of, by that time, could survive, you know, by other means of earnings. And then after graduation, most of us that time joined a large multinational. Did you do an MBA? I did. Where was that? Same alma mater where you are teaching, UC Berkeley. <laughs> where I taught. I, I no longer have time to teach. I'm too busy talking to chaps like you. Uh, but yeah, so you were at UC Berkeley at Haas. Yes. Aha. Uh -huh. Excellent. And this was when? Uh, I graduated UC Berkeley 76. 76. So three years, you go to UC Berkeley, you do a master's, and then you do an MBA, and you're out of UC Berkeley. Right. Um, 1976. Uh, did, you, did you, did you, did you uh, spend time in Silicon Valley? Because that's the time Silicon no, Valley No, there was no started. Silicon Valley that time. That no, time, that's not the true. technology that's was Route 128 outside Boston. Yeah, whole fire. But... Fairchild had begun by then. Had begun. Where? Silicon Valley had begun by then. Yeah, it, but was, it was it was making silicon. But chips. the center was still Massachusetts outside MIT. Uh -huh. And it moved in the mid-80s ah, to Silicon Valley. I see. So uh, Dell computers, Wang computers were all on Route 128. Interesting. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. So you, did you go to Boston after Berkeley? No, so I then uh, uh Got employed by General Electric, as I said, as most of us did, by GE, uh, where I was working in their international finance. And was Jack Welch CEO? No. Uh, Jack Welch came five years later. It was uh, the real icon who built GE. Jack Welch obviously took it to another height. And then uh, in my fourth year at GE, uh, I ran into... Uh, one of India's most successful entrepreneurs, Mr. Ramesh Chauhan. Coca-Cola had just left India in 1977. Mm. And Pepsi was not there anyway. So uh, Mr. Chauhan had a small uh, soft drink company and he launched a cola at that time called Thumbs Up. Thumbs Up. Thumbs Up. Every, all of us who, who, who are slightly older... Bolder, grayer, remember thumbs up. Yes. And uh, so, and within four years, uh, the company was called Parley Beverages. Uh, thumbs up was the leading cola brand, Limka was the lemon lime, and uh, Gold Spot was the orange brand. Uh, Parley had acquired 65% of the Indian market uh, in a relatively short period of time, had 50 franchises, etc. 
So, and uh, Ramesh Chavan, he was an MIT uh, engineer as well. Uh, one of the most dynamic entrepreneurs. As he was an MIT engineer. Yes. Not an IIT engineer. No, that was his uh, failing in life. I guess. <laughs> so he was getting bored that I have 65% market share. You know, maybe I go to 70, 75, but there's no fun now, right? Mm. So he said, I want to take my beverage to the Mecca of soft drinks, which is the United States. Hmm. What, what a what a crazy idea at that time. <laughs> yes. You know, the chap is in socialist India and he's dreaming of entering. You met him in 1977 or 1980? 1980. 1980. 1980. 1980. So I was this, three years at GE that time. Brilliant. So Reagan is about to come to power. About to come. Reagan comes to power in 1981. 82. 81. 81. 81 he won. Yeah. yeah. So 80 he wins. 81 he's in power. So... Um, Basically, this is a chap who's dreaming of bringing um, a product from socialist India to the mecca of capitalism Correct. and soft drinks, America. Yes. Well, one can say he has cojones, if nothing else. <laughs> so, so we got very friendly. He was 10 years uh, older than I was. I was at that time probably 28, 29. And uh, we became very good friends uh, in New York because he used to come every three months to see how he could tap and enter the U.S. marketplace. And then, uh, so one day, and we used to meet probably four or five times a week, right, in the evenings. He, he did that old uh, uh, Steve Jobs formula at that time. He said, Karthik, so do you want to waste your life, you know, working for a large company where you're a small corp, or do you want to make a difference? So I said, tell me more. He said, look, I want to set up Parley International. So, why don't you head it? So I said, so what does that mean? He said, I don't know. You figure it out. So I left GE. We set up partly. 1980. 81. 81. So you lasted four years in GE. Yeah. And the six months, you know, because I was not sure, you know. So anyway, he said, you figure it out. So left GE. And I was actually on a very fast track at GE as well. So, you know, you've always been in the fast track, <laughs> Karthik. I mean, you've just run the Prague Marathon. So, so tell me something new. <laughs> so anyway, we set up Parley International. Uh, it was me and the doorknob. Uh, There's nothing else. I had to build it from scratch. And then obviously six months, you know, into the role, I told Ramesh that, look, uh, selling Coca-Cola against Coca-Cola is not a good idea. Mm. Okay. So he said, okay. So then I said, you know, the U.S. is just beginning to turn health conscious, right? And fruit-based juices, our real, Snapple was the first, right, are coming into play. So why don't we think of tropical juice-based beverages? So we're not competing with the cranberries and the apples. So we'll do a mango, we'll do a papaya, we'll do a guava. It was, nobody had even heard of those fruits. Mm. So that's how we launched. Uh, how very cosmopolitan the Americans were. <laughs> yeah. So we launched uh, Maza Mango as the first uh, uh, product. It's still going strong. It is. It is. And, uh, and then, of course, we started in the U.S. and then we expanded. We took it to the Middle East mm. because mango there is, you know, 
uh, very popular. Then I launched it in uh, Europe as well, uh, England and Netherlands and Germany, etc. So that was my entrepreneurial journey, which lasted for about uh, 10 years. And then in 1990, Rajiv Gandhi was the prime minister who wanted to liberalize India. And Pepsi was knocking at the doors to come into India. Okay, and we fought Pepsi tooth and nail for three years. I think it's the largest publicity we ever got without paying a dime. Right? Because, uh, and our motto in filing uh, Pepsi was that do you want computer chips or do you want potato chips? Right? We were a scarce nation, right, in foreign mm -hmm. exchange. Anyway, Pepsi got in. Uh, they packaged their product as an agricultural product. Okay, they said, we'll come in and improve the tomato growing capability of India and which we will then export to the world because of Pizza Hut. Did okay. they actually do that? Yes, they did. Yes, did they, they did. Yes, they did. Hmm. And so, and at that time, uh, there was no Coke. So the government... You mean Coca-Cola, Coca not cocaine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as a result, because it was pre-91, when they got the approval, their hands were tied that for every dollar they sold in India, they had to export a dollar worth of products. And not soft drinks, they could export anything. Okay, so and fast forward, India liberalized 91. Coca-Cola now has applied to come in. They get the permission in 93. And Ramesh Shawan, being a smart entrepreneur, said, told me one day, Karthik, we got to sell. I said, what do you mean we got to sell? You still have 65% market share. He said, no country in the world where both of them are there is there a third player. If only one of them is there, there's a local strong player. So uh, Parley sold to Coke, 93. I exited. And, you know, so Thumbs Up is now owned by Coca-Cola. Not very many people drink it anymore. No. No, Thumbs Up sells more Thumbs Up in India than Coke. As Still? A product, as a product. Still? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I stand corrected. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so my entrepreneur uh, uh, journey continued. Uh, it just so happened at that time that uh, my uh, close buddy in IIT Bombay, Sir Ramesh Wangal, was heading Pepsi. Mm. And he became managing director of Pepsi India. So once he knew I had left, he called me and he said, look, you know, uh, I'd like to chat with you. So I said, okay, for what? He said, look, I've got these huge export obligations and I need help. And you've sold products from India into the US. So why don't you come and do a joint venture with us? So that's what I did. So I did a JV with Pepsi, manufacturing tropical fruit beverages in India and leveraging the Pepsi network in the US for sales. How long did you do that? So uh, that... Once Coke got in, right, the government, Pepsi now cried foul, saying Coke didn't have any of the restrictions because it was post liberalization. Mm, so post Pepsi, 1991. Yeah. So post Narsimha Rao. Yes. So Pepsi said, guys, market. we can't operate in shackles. You created this use of, we need a fair playing field. So government had to lift the restrictions on Pepsi. And as a result, there was no need to do any of these exports. So uh, 
And when we were doing exports, we could export anything, right? So I was scrounging at what things India was competitive for exports. So uh, we did, you know, uh, packaged uh, cashews from Kerala, put it in those small pouches, you know, fancy packaging, etc. for US. One of the products we had identified was this company called Tasty Bite with the ready-to-eat vegetarian food, non-refrigerated, no preservatives, no additives. And we were working with them we, uh, because I said this is a great product. America has now had gone way beyond, you know, they were bringing a vegetarian meal into their dinner plate. They were also wanting to eat more healthy whilst drinking more healthy started. So that's when we did a lot of work with this company, Tasty Bite. We kind of pepsitized it in terms of manufacturing processes. And then all the restrictions were lifted. So Pepsi said, guys, we don't need this Tasty Bite food to go into the U.S. So they said, why don't you run with it since you've done so much work? That's what I did. So, so you ended up owning it. Owning Tasty Bite. Mm. But at that time, we only took the marketing rights for Tasty Bite in the U.S. The product was too early for India. You know, Indians were not used to eating packaged food. Indians don't eat the meal they cook at night next morning, right? even if it's stored. In those days, I'm talking uh, mid-90s. So anyway, so uh, we took the marketing rights. Tasty Bite was about to go bankrupt because nobody in India was buying it. And suddenly we, we became the largest customer. Fast forward, Unilever acquires it. They acquired quality ice cream. Tasty Bite goes with it. And they call us and they said, guys, we believe, you know, you are 90% of sales. Why don't you take it off our hands? So, which we did. So, that's when we acquired Tasty Bite. My colleague at Pepsi joined me that time. And then Tasty Bite, 20 years later, became the largest Indian brand in the U.S., which we sold in 2016 to Mars. Interesting. And, and. This is a very interesting and unusual entrepreneurial journey because I've met Indian entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and they went native in California and they made their money in tech. Uh, they came up with great products, great ideas. We know Tom came up, Correct. he led a team, he came up with Intel Pentium 4. And so uh, they were very, very good technologists, engineers, entrepreneurs, but they lost their moorings with India. It seems that you've always retained your moorings with India. Yes, yes. So uh, so everything I've done, starting with Maza and then Tasty Bite and post Tasty Bite also, my back end has always been India. So whilst I've never worked in India, I've always worked with India. So uh, starting from 81, when I joined did the JV with Parlays, I used to come to India four or five times a year. Right. So I'm kind of an outlier as far as what the traditional NRI does, who comes to India three, four weeks in December, stays at a five star hotel and goes back. So I've seen India change. And now you live in India. Yes. Uh, for how many years? So having sold to Mars mm -hmm. is, you know, 2016, 2016, the right. year Donald Trump Was, won the election. Yes. yes. So, uh, by the way, I had, uh, you know, I've always been very active and interested in politics. So in 2007, uh, I had, uh, with other Indians, we were 10 of us, who had formed a group called South Asians for Obama. 
again, which was uh, because uh, this Indians, couldn't be two thousand seven. The first time, yeah, the first time, two thousand seven. First, yeah, okay. first, yeah, when he was one of yeah. nine candidates. Okay, so yeah. even before two thousand eight. Yeah, 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 yeah. When okay. he was just a senator, right? Mm. Three-year, three-term senator. No, uh, one no, of the things is he I, wasn't a three-term senator. He no, no, three-year senator. Three-year senator. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. And uh, so you know, being an entrepreneur, obviously, I have a high risk-taking ability, and so I normally back uh, not the favorite, right? I back the underdog. So that's that's been a consistent trait. Mm. And uh, so you back David against Goliath. Yes. Yes, and you know you win some, you lose some. So, but one win makes up for the other losses ah, because the odds are much higher. True, true that. <laughs> so anyway, so that that was my entry into politics. Did a lot of campaigning because Indians in America, if you look at the history, immigrant communities after thirty, forty years when they've settled, uh, and we of course you know were the largest income immigrant community. We have to enter politics. Right, and Indians were just beginning to enter local, state, uh, city politics. Here was an opportunity where you know I thought uh, if we gather the galvanize the Indians for Obama. So anyway, so did that uh, for fifteen months, and that was my entry into politics, which again you know as you know later I'm doing in India as well. So anyway, having sold a uh, taxi uh, by to Mars, I was sixty five. And again, the question was, you know, oh, by the way, uh, before that, it just so happened in 2012. Uh, I happened to have uh, met a bunch of my colleagues who had just sold their software company, and four of them, and they wanted to do something with India's educational system. And the idea they came upon was that you know all of us, uh, I mean, in this room. And you know our friends and colleagues somehow have won life's lottery, right? Born in the right family, went to the right school, got the right jobs, etc. But to win a lottery, you need a ticket. You need to buy a ticket, which we call life's opportunity. So if that person in that village was given that opportunity, maybe he could be as good or maybe even better than us. So that's the bet these four guys took. I joined them. Uh, it was called Hell Hell High. Which was can we take fifth class dropouts in rural India and train them so they can earn a living, right? So because they dropped out, they were earning three hundred rupees a month, uh, carrying bricks, and we set up uh, education BPO education centers, business process outsourcing centers, where we train them for English, data entry, and soft skills, and set up a BPO center in the village. So from earning three hundred rupees. They started earning six thousand rupees, but still living in the village. That was my entry into the social sector. Uh, that company has evolved, changed, has done a lot of other things. So when when we sold Tesiwad, I said, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? One of those. That's when I decided that I was I was going to go back to India, and with my experience and expertise, help in India's development sector. Okay, so. That was two thousand sixteen. She moved here when. So what I did for the first two years, again, you know, being an engineer, being analytical, I studied the social sector. So I attended conferences, uh, workshops around the world. I had the luxury of doing it. So not only India, but I did it in Brazil, Colombia, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Kenya, Uganda, etc. 
She flew around to all these yeah. places. Yeah. So, yeah, I had a good exit uh, from TSC Bike. And I said, before I get into the sector, since I know nothing about it, uh, let me first study it. The glaring thing which came about India was that uh, India had the largest number of uh, non-profits, right? NGOs, as we call them, 3.1 million. But we were ranked 131st out of 184 countries on the Human Development Index. So something was wrong, right? Here, your largest number of uh, non-profits and your 131st. And what became apparent is that our non-profits, while they wear their heart on their sleeves, were not really run by professionals. They were run by social activists who had never run a business. And hence, they were unable to scale. So I said, you know, that's when the idea came to me that can we create a platform to help a nonprofit scale for national impact? And that's when, you know, I came back in 2018. So you've been here five years. Yes. Yes. So you've, over the years, you've seen India change in many ways. You've seen, for instance, IIT change. So paint us a picture. Tell us how has India changed? in the years you have observed it and, and in the years you've lived in it? So uh, my last five years uh, after moving back from the US and uh, having set up this platform where we become, again, it's uh, fueled by 150 of us IIT alumni because many IITians are running an NGO or donating to an NGO. So I said, many are doing that. If we did it collectively, it would amplify our voice. And many of us now, we are 300,000 alumni, right? Many of us are in our 60s. So I've done it, been there, done that. Successful corporate careers, uh, mostly in the US, uh, in India as well of late. And we said, so can we create a platform which can help NGO scale? And in that journey, again, uh, what I did is uh, I had a co-founder with me, another IITian, Joe Fernandez. And we went around the country and studied about 120 uh, non-profits. Our goal, can we scale them for national impact, was our mantra. And in that journey, you know, I went across India, visiting villagers, which, villages and villagers who, you know, coming from the background I was, was all theory. And what really struck me was the aspirational India with these youth. Okay, they had same access to information now as I had because they all had a cell phone, right? Not necessarily a Apple, but they had access to the internet. And you could tell now that they were chopping at the bits to get educated and start earning real money, whether it was moving to tier two town or moving to the cities. So that's one clear change. The Indian youth was walking tall, right? The Indian youth, when I graduated, walked with a slump, head down, not head up. So and that's a big change from walking in a slump, head down, to walking tall, head high. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we all know the numbers, right? We got the largest uh, demographic uh, dividend in the world for the next decade. We've and, got and, over 1.4 billion people in Yeah, in and of now. which 50% uh, mm. are in the age of 16 to 
30. Right? Yeah. So, so, so that's, I mean, it's, it's some call it the demographic dividend, but uh, a few warn that this dividend could also turn out to be a disaster so that we could have a demographic dividend in which, you know, in this scenario, we could embark on a high growth path. And the other is we could have a demographic disaster in the sense that there wouldn't be enough jobs for these young Absolutely. people. And then we would have social unrest and whatnot. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And the numbers are stark, right? We are, uh, there are 1 million people entering, uh, 1 million entering the workforce every month, right? So that's 12 million a year and that's going to go on for the next decade. There is no way the service industry can provide those kind of jobs. And the model which we are following, and again, the success of the IITNs and the other, the IIMs and our other educational institutions has actually driven the lower income people to get a degree, right? And hence you, uh, if you go in, into rural India, there are only two billboards you see. Either you see a billboard for a telephone company or you see a billboard for a college or a school. Okay, that's the change. Because that is their ticket. And as a result, uh, I mean, the numbers are stark in engineering. I've worked with a lot of uh, my friends who run companies is outside of the IITs and maybe another five, 10, engineering colleges, those graduates are not employable, okay? And that is what you're calling the demographic disaster. Or uh, yeah, I'm not even talking about people who are getting a bachelor's of arts in English or Hindi or Tamil or doing a sociology degree in a town in Jharkhand or for that matter, Gujarat. So there are lots of people with degrees who are practically unemployable. And we know that when governments take, bring out job vacancies, even for peons, yes. there are PhDs who exactly. are applying who for, them. for those. Yes. So I think the, the model has to change. Uh, there are uh, NGOs who are actually doing it. And I think the government is realizing we got to shift to the German model. Yeah, and that, that you bring up a very good point because Rajiv Pratap Rudi is a friend of mine. He was a minister in the government and his job was, his remit at the time was to basically uh, uh, skill people. Uh, and it's a good idea, but it's still not taken off. Even though we have millions of basically unemployable graduates, we still lack good plumbers, electricians, carpenters, you name it, you name any fundamental skill um, and uh, the Indian technology institutes that were supposed to provide these uh, jobs, uh, provide workmen for these jobs, they haven't taken off. In fact, most of the government's have initiatives have, have failed yeah, abysmally. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so we, we are living in a curious uh, universe. No, absolutely. And the good news on this side is the new vocational skills can be as exciting or sexy. So it's no longer plumbers and carpenters. We need people who can fill, fix cell phones. We need people who can fix solar panels. You know, we need people, if you look at an automobile today, 70% is electronics, right? So those skill sets, but they have to be trained. So instead of going for a degree, like in Germany, when you are at grade 11 or 12, you get those vocational skills in those two years. So when you graduate, you don't have to go to college. You could take a six-month diploma as a vertical specialty 
and then you enter the job market. But with yeah, skills. They train at industry. They have a very good apprenticeship. Apprenticeship, model. yes. So you learn by doing. It's learning by doing. And yeah. they are masters at it. Correct. And not just, you know, going to class and getting a degree. So that's a big change. It's a big challenge. The numbers are huge, right? One million a month. But I think it can be done because, you know, the, uh, uh, because India is leapfrogging uh, techno technologies. So, for instance, uh, when the cell phone started in India in uh, 91, for the first five years, I think we sold 5 million cell phones. At that time, India had 32 million landlines. Okay. I'm talking. When Reliance entered, and said the cell phone, the cost was 16 rupees per call, per minute. When Reliance came in, um, one of, not one of, India's largest industrial group, and when uh, Mukesh Ambani uh, went to his father and said, I think we need to enter the telecom industry. So that studied and he said, okay, on one condition, your in and out charge has to match the, size, the price of a postage stamp, which was one rupee. And that's what Reliance did when they launched in, I think, 2001. But they launched after Dhirubhai died, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. Long after. Yeah, but that was the con condition he had made because he was still chairman and CEO. I see. And we went from 5 million cell phones to 1.2 billion in the next decade. So. All right. So India has changed. So India has, connectivity. Connectivity is a huge plus. I think the second, because of the connectivity, and India took the leap in financial inclusion, right? Indians have the lowest number of credit cards because 80% of Indians are not in the traditional job sector. So mm -hmm. they don't have a salary slip, which is what any bank will look at. So with the advent of financial inclusion and with the cell phone and COVID accelerated, it was there already. So, you know, and America doesn't have it today, neither does Europe. My entire financial transactions in India today is done through my cell phone, including going and buying that 10 rupee dhanya from my vegetable market. So you use Paytm? Paytm. And there are others. There's Google Pay, Phone Pay. There are like seven, eight of them. Paytm was the first. So in that sense, India is quite like China. Yes. Yes. But we are still... Or Kenya, M-Pesa. M-Pesa was the first. Yeah, M-Pesa was for, the first. For money transfers. And we did it, we've done it at scale, right? When Nandan Nilekani set up Aadhaar, which is the equivalent of the social security card. So every Indian, even in that village, you know, has an ID now. So, so I think that's the other big change. And then I think the third, of course, is with the advent of technology, we've, people are no longer looking to enter the government for a secure job. Right. Well, a lot are. Look at the numbers who write the civil services examination every year. Yes, yes. And yes. I, I just saw the newspapers and it had photographs of all the people who Who'd were ranked first and first, and second, ranked. third. Yeah. So we have a fixation with that. Uh, and when you take a step back, you think, what does an Indian administrative service officer actually do? Or an Indian police service officer or an Indian foreign service officer? They push files. Yes. They do very well, little protection. They are meant to protect, not to scale, right? They want to make sure that whoever that person, their, their role, given their avatar at the Indian Civil Service with the Brits, and that hasn't changed much, 
Well, it's a colonial legacy. legacy. And like many other former colonies, the bureaucracy is extractive. It tries to extract its point pound of flesh. And to use uh, uh, a term in economics, it's rent-seeking. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, but the flip side, I'd like... Uh, but I'd so, like... so that point isn't entirely true. People still want government service, particularly in, in North India. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very North India uh, phenomena. And again, I'm saying, but if you look at... Again, the you know again you look you got to look at two two edges of that curve, right? So if you look at the IITNs today, right? Where earlier we all went and worked with large companies, thirty percent of IITNs today do startups. That's as high as thirty. Yes. Wow, that's that's so, a profound change. Exactly, that's a huge change. That's a, a huge change, and many of them have built unicorns in India itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. So, Unicorns are companies with a valuation of over a billion dollars. Right. And, and they've done it, you know, in the span of a decade. Hmm. So, so you're seeing that entrepreneurial and, you know, India was always considered an entrepreneurial nation, but we were not. We were self-employed. The guy who's selling pan on the street is self-employed. He's not an entrepreneur. He's not creating jobs. For the, so people assume India is an entrepreneurial country. We are not. We're a country of self-employed people whether it's that tailor or the panwala or, you know, now we are becoming entrepreneurs where we are scaling, scaling uh, jobs and creating more employment, right? So, so I think that's a big change and the ability, because earlier to work for a large company or a government is your risk-taking ability is very low. You are not willing to take risks. The moment you start entering and becoming an entrepreneur, you're taking a huge amount of risk. Right. And the other thing which has changed, which America always had, is failure earlier in India was really considered that if you failed once, no bank will lend you money, no VC will lend you money. You'll be looked down with your head down. In America, failure was considered a great thing, saying, hey, man, you learned more when you fail than when you succeed. So that is a big change now because uh, entrepreneurs fail, they get up and start and go back again. You fall off your horse, you dust yourself off, and you get back in the saddle. That's entrepreneurship. Besides what I'm doing in the social sector, I think the last two decades were China's. I think the next two are India's. There's absolutely no question. Well, we, 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 we've hit a high note. Uh, I think it's a good time to stop. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for your time, Karthik. Pleasure talking to you. We'll have you back on the podcast. And um, those of you who are listening to FO Podcasts, make sure that you download us on uh, Spotify, on Apple, on uh, Google, and make sure you uh, rank us, rate us, uh, leave a review, and uh, spread the word amongst your friends. So from Atul Singh and Karthik Kilachan. It's bye for now. Thank you very much, folks, for listening in. Thanks a lot. Of you.